This week on the Totally Biased Media Podcast, we talk Metroid Dread, discuss some big news coming from G4, Nintendo announces the worst deal in gaming, and more. Stay tuned for another ball-morphing, screw-attacking, beam-grappling episode of TBM. I'm Jackson Walkup, and I am not two trench coats in a kid. I'm Jason Simmons, and I'm the greatest bounty hunter in the galaxy, circa 1985. I'm Jordan Walkup, and I'm simping for Samus. Folks, we are of course talking about Metroid Dread, the newest game in the Metroid series, dating all the way back to the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1986. Now, this is a storied series. And it's gone a couple of different directions. (laughs) And a couple different dimensions. So, you you might know Metroid in one of two ways. There's your classic Metroids. These 2D adventure Metroidvania, which we'll get into later. uh, You know, side-scroller type situations. Then you had the Metroid Prime games, which were the the bigger series and the bigger financial success. Because they were first-person shooters and... In, in the early 2000s, everybody was really loving these new first-person shooters. Hey, they still are. Metroid Dread is getting back to those roots. This is the first 2D side-scroller Metroid we've had since 2010, unless you count a, a remake in 2017. But regardless, we're talking about those old-school Metroids. Wait, did you say 2010? Other M was a 3D game. <laughs> But this is the first time where Metroid has gone back to its 2D roots since Zero Mission, which was a remake of the first game (laughs) on the Game Boy Advance in 2004. Well, Samus Returns was a remake of Metroid 2. Wouldn't that be the same thing? it's complicated. You could just say it's the first new one since 2002 with Metroid Fusion. (laughs) Yes, Metroid Dread is the first new 2D Metroid game <laughs> since Metroid Fusion from 2002. <laughs> Whoa, this is a tough one. Okay. He's going to cut it, but we had to use several takes to get here. <laughs> Don't let <laughs> him silence me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's talk a little bit about the story of Metroid. So Metroid follows Samus Aran the galaxy's most dangerous bounty hunter. And over the last 25 years or so, she's gone around and defeated a whole bunch of intergalactic monsters, an entire species of aliens, which is a a good thing and we'll explain why later. She's prevented a couple of potentially humanity-ending cataclysms. Basically, Samus has done it all. And this time around, things are looking pretty good. The Metroids are gone. They thought the X-Parasite was gone. But oh no. But the X-Parasite from Metroid Fusion uh, has now showed up on this random alien planet called ZDR. So that's not really Samus' prerogative. She's already dealt enough with these guys. 
So instead of sending Met- instead of sending Metroid, instead of sending Samus, the Galactic Federation sends seven of these indestructible survey bots called Emmy to go and check out what's going on with the X parasites. But as soon as they land on the planet, they all just mysteriously go offline. And these are incredibly valuable, incredibly dangerous, just overall something that they need to know what's happening with. So the Federation sends Samus to ZDR to figure out what happened to the Emmys. And pretty much as soon as she lands, uh, she is attacked by a big old bird person called a Chozo, which are a race of an ancient race of bird people. They kind of took Samus in and taught her a lot of stuff. They're also like harbingers of all kinds of bad things to happen in the universe. It's all kinds of stuff. All, all types of good it, things, yeah. too. But the most important yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. I believe, is that they were thought to be extinct. Yes. And now there's just at least one of them just on ZDR, and it's uh, got this big metal suit, all kinds of crazy powers, and uh, it kind of beats down Samus. And the game starts as Samus wakes up uh, in the planet's innermost core, real, real far away from her ship, and all of her abilities, equipment, basically everything about her suit except for her most basic gun is just gone. She has physical amnesia. (laughs) She has physical amnesia, which is the first time this game will make you roll your eyes. But she's got to get her stuff back. She's got to find out what happened to the Emmys. She's got to confront this big old bird guy. And uh, that's that's all you got. You got to figure out the rest on your own. Now, game's pretty straightforward in terms of how it's played. It's very much in line with previous Metroid games. So I wanted to check with the two of you. What is your history with Metroid? Like, how many of the games have you played in the past? And to, like, what extent? Jason, I know you've, you've been into a lot of them, so let's start with Jackson here. Have you, have you played any of the other ones in the series? I have played some of Samus Returns. Gotcha, gotcha. I, Actually, we've talked about that. Yeah, yeah. I've never, you know, I, I didn't beat it. I don't even think I got close. But, like, it was really fun what I played of it. It's definitely the most similar to Dread, both in terms of how it plays, the visual style. Um, and they, they kept sort of the, uh, similar progression. the counter. I believe that was yes. added in Samus Returns. Yeah, yeah. They kept the counter, which is now a crucial part of Samus's kit. So, Jason, what's your history with it? I mean, I haven't played that many of the 2D Zelda, er, <laughs> the 2D Metroids. Um, yeah. I've played a little bit of the original Metroid, like on emulators and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is too old and I'm not a huge fan personally. And I, I played Super Metroid, which is the only 2D Metroid I've actually like played and beaten all the way through before Dread. And I enjoyed Super Metroid. It was pretty fun. Uh, and then I've played the main series Metroid Prime games, one, two, and three. I haven't played Hunters or Federation Force. So let's just yeah, say... I don't know that anyone has. I'm, a, I'm somewhat of a veteran of, of uh, Metroid, but not in the last decade. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I've, I've played everything on the list. Um, except for the original release of uh, Metroid 2, 
the remake of the original Metroid and uh, the ones that literally no one on the face of the planet has played like Pinball and uh, Federation Force. <laughs> and uh, all I've played of Metroid Prime Hunters is the demo that was a pack-in with Nintendo DSs when they first launched. So I've played the first like three missions of Metroid Prime Hunters a bunch of times, but the actual game itself, never. Do you even play Samus but, in that game or is it like Federation Force and you get... Federation Force was lame because you didn't play as Samus. I had a friend. I I played a little bit of Federation Force on a friend's 3DS. I didn't buy it, though. But you didn't play as Samus in that one. It was a bunch of other bounty hunters or I guess they they were probably Federation soldiers. I don't know exactly what the story was. Really lame. It also it also had very little to do with anything in the story which hunters was in the same capacity but but hunters was a tried and true metroid prime like it was still a story that followed samus on a hunt for a big evil creature that was endangering a lot of people so another really important thing about metroid is that in terms of gameplay it sort of fits into this subgenre that it also simultaneously helped create called the metroidvania now, for those of you who are for those of you who are unfamiliar, Metroidvania stems from the Metroid series, obviously, because um, it was this entirely new type of 2D platformer that was much more centric or much more exploration centric, and had this big open world that you had to explore and multiple you had to go through different maps to find things and then go back over once you found new items that could open new doors. So it had this big big focus on exploration, which platformers had not previously done. And that really set the stage for a lot of pretty big games, one of the most important being Castlevania, Symphony of the Night specifically, which took that same concept and then expanded it out exponentially. It had this massive castle that you sort of explored in the same way as metroid but went a much more progression like standard progression system on top of it and those two games together sort of created this subgenre, which has now become immensely popular specifically with like indie developers like there are so many big indie games which fit into this category now now have y'all played much in terms of the metroidvania genre because one of my favorites, and I've talked about that in the past, but I, I genuinely don't know for the two of you. I haven't played too many of them. I I was really into uh, Symphony of the Night, and like I mentioned, I played uh, Super Metroid and liked it, but generally I would say I'm not like a huge fan of the genre. I admire them in a lot of ways. Like I think it's really cool how they managed to pack so much into like a map that's relatively small by modern standards jackson what's your experience with the whole system (laughs) i'm sure i've played some metroidvanias and just not knowing it because it's been a long time but other than this samus returns the only other one i could think of that i've played in recent memory is hollow knight which was also pretty good didn't play most of it but had a fun time (laughs) yeah i kind of like jackson where i'll start a lot of metroidvanias (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i in my mind there are two just quintessential metroidvanias and like they're the ones that just encapsulate the entire genre just masterfully yeah that's right symphony of the night and super metroid well definitely symphony of the night like that game is a genuine masterpiece and it holds up 
extremely well. The other, as Jackson already mentioned, is, is Hollow Knight. I think it has some of the absolute best map design, some incredible like power progression systems. It makes you really get lost in the world and really explore every corner of, of what you're looking at more out of survival than like Metroid where you're looking for upgrades and things, but it's, it's phenomenal. And I think it was sort of, in my mind, it might actually be the best Metroidvania, not the best at being a Metroidvania, but just the best game that fits into the genre. It's also roguelike. So of course you really like it. (laughs) Well, it's not really roguelike, but it does have a progression system. That's sort of akin to like, like, yeah, I would say it's more of a souls light. Yeah, I'm making. Yeah. Um, that's my new term. God, I, some I genres set, suck. I said Souls Light. <laughs> yeah, you know, like how we have rogue lights and rogue likes. This is a Souls Light. Yeah, yeah, that's that that fits it perfectly. Um, I don't. I preferred. I personally really preferred Super Metroid over Symphony of the Night. Like, I think Super Metroid's about as perfect as you can really get with the. Maybe I, I should play Hollow Knight and then I could say more. But like based on the Metroidvanias I've played, like I really feel that Super Metroid is like perfect in that place where it it gives you the items, like the new items that you need at like a good pace. It's really obvious like where you need to use them. It doesn't have as many issues like the original Metroid where like it's not always obvious how to use your new abilities. Because it was in a manual instead of actually in the game. Super Metroid actually (laughs) puts everything in it. Metroid has a problem right at the very beginning where it gives you missiles. And you come to your first missile door. And for some reason it takes five missiles to open a missile door in the original Metroid. Yep. I, I really feel like by Super Metroid they had managed to kind of get rid of issues like that. They started to think more intuitively and less just like... How does this work on paper? And they started to push it towards how would people reason this out? And I think that that went a long way. Super Metroid's also just really good looking. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It is still a gorgeous game. Like I think it's it's some of the best pixel art ever. Um, and I think what what Metro what, uh, Super Metroid does incredibly well, and what I think Metroid Dread does really well as well, is it really makes use of every inch of its space. Like, everything in the game feels very intentional. And I think that that's something that is incredibly important to the Metroidvania genre. But we've laid out our biases about Metroid series and the Metroidvania genre as a whole. So let's really get into it. Jackson, how is Metroid Dread? And before you start talking, I do want to get in here real quick at the top and say it's exceptional. Okay, you go ahead. I I do really like it. I definitely have issues with it, but I still think overall it is really fun. Um, one of the key things I want to point out, I don't know if it's traditionally a big thing with Metroid games, and it may just be more evident because of the Emmy Zones. The movement in this game is really good. Yes. Like, yes. It, is, it feels fantastic. Yeah. And the Emmy rooms really let that shine because, you know, you can't defeat the Emmys unless you get a certain one-use power-up, but... <laughs> And it, it really lets the movement shine because, like, especially once you get things like the morph ball and uh, the uh, the dashes, 
I, I think movement is definitely a big part of this game. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And like the way that you can dodge under enemies if you need to, uh, especially there's a part pretty early on where you need to stand on a button while an enemy is chasing you that like raises some water so you can go through a little pathway. It's like a one block high one, so you can only slide into it because you don't have the morph ball yet. And I, that part's really satisfying because the Emmy, it travels on the roof to get to you. So it's like right on top of you when the button is done. I think it's probably, I assume it's probably scripted to where the Emmy's like really close by the time it actually finishes up. And like you have barely any time to just slide right under the Emmy and escape. And it's super satisfying. Yeah, that also just, the movement's very fluid. But that also just brings me to how good the inclusion of Emmys in this game are. The Emmy rooms are definitely my favorite part of the game. Because, like, until you find the power-up, which you can't even do, like, the first time you come to most Emmy rooms, you're just helpless. You gotta run. That's that's the, the dread part. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it it is it is heavy on the dread. And I think that that is a very cool cool way that they did it. I, I think for me, it's it's really hard to say whether I think Dread is better or worse than classics like Super Metroid or Fusion, which are, are both incredible. But I think that just in terms of like the feel of this game, I think it's the best in the series, like by a pretty good margin. And I think everything else, it definitely still competes with Fusion and Super Metroid. Like literally for the entire run of this game, which admittedly is rather short. It, it's just fun, like the entire time through. Even even just going back to hit items I missed was still just a lot of fun just because getting around in this game is cool. Yeah. I definitely agree that the Emmy zones are a really big part of this game. Like, they they feel completely different because when you're in normal rooms, you can just generally, you know, run through full speed and just take out enemies that are in your way. But when you get to the Emmy zones, like, you can't do anything against an Emmy except run. Um, if they catch you, there's a little that you have a small chance to escape. And sometimes you'll get several in a row and start feeling really confident in yourself. And then you'll, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I think the timing on those is randomized every time. It is. So uh, yeah. you, there's not a great chance that you're going to get away from them. But when you do and you slide under them and escape through like a nearby door or something like that, it's so satisfying. <laughs> but yeah. usually when you're exploring through their areas, like, you're kind of sneaking around. You get an ability that lets you turn invisible so they can't see you, but you're also limited in mobility. Um, yeah. You lose your dash when you're invisible, for example, and then for a yeah. while afterwards while it recharges. Yeah. My only issue with the Emmy Zones is that I think you find out too fast how to beat them. You find out on the first one. I think the way it should work is like the third or fourth one is when you learn how to beat them, and then you can go back and finish the ones before that. I kind of wish you couldn't beat them, personally. I think uh, when you're coming back later to explore, it's kind of lame when you get to those Emmy zones that are... They'll fill up with like generic enemies, but you lose out on that cat and mouse game that you're playing with the Emmys normally. Yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. And that, that actually brings me to one of the one of my personal issues with the game. And I, I think it's fairly minor and it's not going to sink it for a lot of people. But I think you get some of the abilities 
that impact the Emmy zones a little too early. Like invisibility, for example, it's certainly not like an easy ticket to get in, getting away from the Emmys, but it does sort of trivialize some of the earlier ones. Like the first two or three invisibility is going to get you real far. Like some of the later ones are faster and can scan you from further away. So it's not quite as useful, but like some of your high mobility stuff and your invisibility, I think sort of makes it to where those aren't as tough. I think I still died more in the later ones than the early ones, because even though I had those powers, the maps were getting more complex, but it's still, I don't know. I feel like there was just a lot of waiting around, like while I was invisible for them to just go away sometimes. And I think that's something that maybe should have came a little bit later. The map complexity is big uh, to that, but also the, the Emmys just actually get like better abilities as you kind of go along. Um, yeah. There's a blue one in particular that I can't remember if it's the blue one that freezes you. One freezes so. you and one shocks you. And uh, if you get hit, I think they can hit you through walls or at least the yeah, shock yeah. one can. And then you're just kind of screwed because uh, <laughs> they're going to catch up with you. You need to hope that you get lucky on the counter mini game. Yeah. And like, I think maybe both of those. Yeah. And I think maybe both of those, the freeze and shock one have like extended scanners too. So like they can get you from farther. I don't think that they set off the alarm though that locks the doors, which is, it's just an interesting note. Um, and then there's also one that's like incredibly fast, which is also, I think one that is in a Emmy zone that has a lot of water and you move slower in water. <laughs> so that one is very stressful. <laughs> So let's kind of circle back with how the progression of the game flows to these suit upgrades and new powers and everything. So generally speaking, the way the game kind of gates you into certain areas is there's about a dozen different types of doors in this world. And every door needs either a special type of gun or something you can do with your gun or you need to blow it up permanently. You do a lot of gun stuff to doors. So... It's very rare that an unlockable is literally just card key or thing that moves this thing. Like, it's almost always something that actually affects your kit that then also opens up new chunks of the map. How did you guys feel about sort of the way the upgrades worked? And were there any, like, especially cool ones this time around? I think for the most part, most of the upgrades are pretty cool and set apart from each other. But there are a few that are too similar. Like, one of the early uh, upgrades you'll get for the plasma cannon, or I guess it's not the plasma cannon yet, just the arm cannon, whatever its normal base mode is called, <laughs> you'll just get one that fires, like, three shots that are already pretty close, so you can open doors that take, you know, three shots at once. <laughs> and uh, then there's one that just upgrades it to the plasma cannon, which is just more damage and a another type of door. The missiles also have this problem of just, like, Eventually, you get the super missile, which is just more damage, and it takes a little slower to fire between each one. <laughs> and then the frost missile, which is still a little similar. Uh, not as bad, though. It just, the problem is, like, yeah, it does freeze enemies. It just takes a little too many, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I mean, I kind of understand what you're saying. Granted, those are kind of problems that have been around since 1986. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I, I really like that 
anytime you get an upgrade that helps you get around, it also helps you in combat. I mean, the big one being the the new dash that gets introduced in this game. Yeah. I think there have been similar things in previous games, but it's just, it's very similar to the dash in like Castlevania Symphony of the Night and Mega Man, uh, like Z or X, or maybe Mega Man. Yeah, it was a Mega Man X where it's just like you can boost forward real quick and it's really useful during boss battles or just when you need to get around a map pretty quickly because you can do like three of them in quick succession the interesting Um, thing i find they they help you get through doors that have pressure plates in front of them like there it's never just an upgrade that every upgrade is (laughs) multi-purpose yeah the interesting thing I find about I find about the dashes is that you can still take damage while doing them. And I feel like a lot of games when you're doing any sort of dodge or anything, like it just negates all damage. So it's interesting to see them not do that. I think for me there's like there's a couple of really standout ones. One because it's incredibly cool and one because I really don't like it at all. But the the really cool one I think is this uh sort of missile lock on type situation where like if you hold your missile aim thing i don't even know what to call it long enough you can then like start marking stuff around the map and it's one really useful in combat because you can send a barrage of like like 10 missiles at one enemy at once but it's also it also opened up the possibility to get into these doors which required hitting a set number of switches in a certain amount of time and i think i probably spent like 10 minutes the first time i encountered one of these just thinking like man i'm too slow at this i gotta get faster not even realizing like oh there's obviously an item that fixes this one thing i will think i will say that i think metroid does better than probably any other game in the genre is that it it gives you these new powers at a pretty steady clip like it's it's very rare you go more than 20 or 30 minutes without getting something new which is really cool and always really refreshing that you know there's like something something new there do you guys think like the pacing on that was was pretty solid as well yeah and that kind of goes into this game feels pretty linear in comparison to most metroid games um it doesn't really feel like there's a lot of actual backtracking generally if you need to go to an area that you've been to before you'll come into a new entrance Uh, instead of actually having to like go back and explore areas you've already been to i think like the exploration is really good for finding the extra stuff but the story itself is super linear like uh, there's never a point where i was even close to getting lost and i imagine that most people would agree (laughs) there were a few points i got lost but that was mostly just due to my issue with the hidden walls there are a lot of hidden walls in this game so if you are if you are new to the Metroid series, be on the lookout for um, a lot of situations where the answer to a puzzle or the answer on how to get through something is literally just shoot every wall with every type of ammunition you got. It's a little bit annoying. It's it's definitely going to alienate some fans, especially people that have not played a lot of Metroid in the past. I'll go I'll go ahead and say I really do not like that they do that. But I still really enjoy this game. So if you don't like that, still definitely try this game. The minimap highlights any areas that have hidden blocks on them. So you're never going to be like completely lost. What did you guys primarily play the game in? Almost exclusively docked. I played it once handheld while I was going back exploring just to kind of see what it was like. But almost exclusively docked. Yeah, about the same for me. I, I had to drive my mom to a doctor's appointment and... While she was at the doctor's for like a couple hours, I played handheld mode. So I I think I only played this in handheld mode. And I'm definitely going to go and try it in docked mode since I haven't yet. But 
this game has the same issue that Breath of the Wild did, and probably a few other games. I don't know which ones though, where it has a lot of frame rate drop issues while in handheld mode. Yeah, I also think that the controls feel a little bit clunkier in handheld mode. Like sometimes yeah. you need to hit multiple buttons, and the way that the handheld Joy Cons are set up, it doesn't really feel great. <laughs> Well, aiming with the Joy-Cons is hard, and this is a game with lots of guns, so... Yeah. That's a big reason I want to try it in docked mode, just to see how much better it is with the Pro Controller. Yeah, I would definitely recommend playing it, it a long way. in docked mode with the Pro Controller. It definitely makes stuff like the using the Speed Boost and the Shine Spark a lot easier. And speaking of aiming in this game, this is not a complaint, more of just a, like, what I would have preferred. I think this game should have been a twin stick shooter. That was sort of my impression at first too. Like I like what they did, but when I was looking at videos of people playing the game, like prior to launch, I just kind of assumed it was a twin stick deal, like moving with left stick, aiming with right. It's, it's not that. I just assumed it was exactly the same as Samus returns. Is it not? (laughs) I I was like, well, it is, but I was expecting more change because now there is an honest to God, dual stick in play for the switch which there was not for the 3ds i imagine they probably didn't want to like alienate people that have played the series for years yeah no and i mean i think what they landed on was fine it's just i it's not what i was expecting going into it i don't think i would like it as much like as a twin stick shooter like i think it would be really nice i can definitely think of times where it would be very nice if it was a twin stick shooter like it would make moving and shooting easier obviously when you're like trying to get around quickly but eh, i i kind of like you need to know where you're going to be standing before you start shooting really yeah if you want to actually like have any fine aim i i think that there's kind of a thoughtfulness that having to stop to aim kind of adds to the game yeah and i think that's also essential in the boss fights like it would the twin stick thing would be nice for smaller enemies on the map but for the boss fights to really hit the way they're supposed to, I think you need to have that level of of stopping, like knowing that you're safe. You need to have yeah. a hand on the buttons so you can use stuff like your dash and your counter. And if you have yeah, one, both of your fingers on the sticks, then it would be a lot harder to get over and use the counter appropriately. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, think I of how many that. times you miss the counter just because you need to move your finger from, like, Y to X, you know? Imagine if you had to move it from the stick all the way up to X. And I guess <laughs> yeah. they could have put it on the stick, like, clicking, but I don't like clicking the stick anytime. Me either. I, yeah. <laughs> I hate it in almost every game. Generally, I don't like clicking the stick, especially not on the Joy-Cons. <laughs> let's let's kind of hone in on those boss fights for a minute, because they're a real big part of this game for sure. Uh, I know there has been some contention amongst the three of us about them, <laughs> but uh, what did, what did you guys think? Like overall, what were the boss fights like? I really like the mini boss fights that you're constantly doing against the, I don't know exactly what they're called. Like the Chozo Spearmen. I don't know if they're Chozo soldiers or what. There, there are two different sets of Chozo enemies that you fight. One of them has a giant spear and the other one has like a gun. <laughs> I really like the ones with the spears. I think those are really fun. They kind of require like a good handle on where you're at and like reading them and getting out of the way at the appropriate times. 
They're very nice. Um, and I, I like the boss fight with Crate a lot as well. It felt like a yeah, very that's classic my, that's my favorite. Metroid boss fight. Oh, oh, and the boss Which fight boss against Crate's the one, the giant dinosaur that was chained uh, up. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah. He's a series regular. <laughs> yeah, he's all the way back from, I believe, the first game in Metroid. I know he was in Super Metroid. But uh, there, there's another boss fight against some X experiment. I don't really know. I don't remember what its name is. I think it's just like experiment and some numbers. Mm. That boss fight was very nice as well. I think. Which one was that? Like mechanically? Uh, like, I don't know. Like, I don't really know what to say mechanically. It was like the black goo one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very, very cool one. Um, I think they're all excellent. Like even the ones which are a little more gimmicky and less like they're more about like just figuring out how to fight them. Like I think they're all very, very cool. And there's a lot of variety in terms of what you need to do to fight them. The one exception being that most of them are only really vulnerable to the missile. So you spam missile a lot, but like otherwise there's a, you're doing a lot of different stuff in the boss fights, which is cool. I don't think any of the boss fights are bad. They're just, I don't know. I just found them all to be pretty boring. None of them felt special. I think they all felt like a big uh, send up of the abilities that you've learned so far. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in a lot of ways you could say like it just felt like fighting normal enemies, I suppose. But I, I think they required like more precision and like actually knowing what you're doing, being able to read like the attacks that they're about to do. As well as like actually using any new abilities you got. Like when you get there's a giant uh, a giant scorpion, I guess, that you fight not long after you get <laughs> the ability to stick to certain walls. And I think like that ability mm. is really put yeah. to the test there, like knowing when you need to use it and like shooting from walls, which I didn't even know was a thing until that boss battle. <laughs> yeah. I, I will also jump in here to say that the final boss in this game is phenomenal. It, I won't I won't get into any spoilers about the mechanics or story elements of that, but it's, it's a very, very cool fight. Also, very cinematically cool. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And also, I mean, if we're talking about bosses, I mean, we, the Emmys are sort of the, the big ones in this game, even though you only really quote unquote fight them in, in one shot there. But like just every time you face the Emmys, it's very cool. Like I, I would, I was genuinely like on the edge of my seat sometimes. And if I knew an Emmy was close and I was really close to like finding something I needed or finally getting to an exit I've been pushing for, like every time you're up against the Emmys, it's very, very cool. Yeah, and one thing I don't like about them is that you kill them all the same way. Yeah. I wish that there was... I, I wish maybe, like, some kind of environmental way that you had to kill them that was different for each one. Like, maybe you make the one that shocks you shock itself to death or something. Or, you know, like, the one that freezes you, you have to kill it with lava. Like... I think that kind of thing would have been cool to see, but instead you kill them all the exact same way by using a, uh, you fight a mini boss against like a floating brain and then you absorb special power yeah. from it that lets you, you get two different types of guns, basically one that'll eat through the Emmy's armor and then another one that you have to charge up that'll instantly kill it. Yeah. I just wish there was a little bit more variety to fighting them. Yeah. That said, there is a lot of variety to, you know, escaping them that I think serves yes. the game really well. Yeah. And and you do it, have to find you do have to find the right place anytime you need to fight one. 
because right, yes. the the gun that takes out their armor takes quite a while to do it and they'll stalk towards you slowly like trying to kill you so if you don't have like a long enough runway between you and the emmy it's going to get to you before you take out its armor or before you charge your gun and it's just gonna instantly kill you <laughs> Right. That reminds me of my favorite moment in the entire game, which I, I hadn't really gotten into. So there is, I, I guess this could go a couple different ways depending on how you are fighting the Emmys and like the, the route you take. But there is one where you have to get up high because the only spot where there's like open road for the Emmy, for you to shoot the Emmy consistently is when it's climbing on the ceiling at you. So you have this point where it's coming at you across the ceiling and you're trying to wear down its armor. So by the time that you destroy it, it's way too close to you. So you have to drop down yourself and make the loop again. So I was like, well, I'll just go right back up there again and start charging the cannon. So when it starts coming across the ceiling, I'll just shoot it there. The trick was the second time it didn't come across the ceiling. It was coming up from under me and I couldn't see it. So I'm there charging my cannon, knowing any second now it's going to turn a ca- it's going to turn a corner and be right in my face. So I have the gun fully charged and just like I'm like. I, I think I was like actively sweating in this scene. It's like I, as soon as I see it, like the millisecond it's on screen, I shoot it. And like, I, I don't know why. It was just such a cool moment when I finally killed it in the midst of not even seeing it until like the second it was there. Yeah. When you're using the anti Emmy weapons, it goes into uh, like a first person or not first person, but like you can only see over in front shoulder. of you. Yeah. Over the yeah. shoulder. So you really have to, you know, sometimes you'll think that you're in a corner or something and the Emmy can't get to you and it'll just come up behind you and kill you while you're charging up, you know, the yeah. one hit kill attack. <laughs> See, I had a situation like Jordan's except it ended up coming from behind me because I couldn't see where it was coming from. Cause when you're aiming the map, the mini map goes down. So I thought I was about to shoot it and then it just uh, gets me from behind. There's a lot of really good moments in this game. Stuff like that. That kind of comes up yeah. fairly yeah. organically. I think that just also brings up how cool the enemies are and really have the the dread of the game. And I think that sort of ties back to this, like, how how fundamentally different that part of the game is, not only from the rest of this game, but the whole Metroid series. Because the Metroid games are sort of a power trip. Like, Samus is incredibly incredibly powerful pretty much from minute one, and then over the course of the game, you're getting ways that improve that exponentially. Like... She has all these different bombs and missiles and different types of lasers, and you get a, a ton of HP as you progress. So, like, she can really take a hit, but the Emmys, they're a one-hit kill, period. Like, they are going to come straight at you, and they are going to stab you in the chest if you don't get away. And, like, that's wild. Like, that's such a fundamentally, like, different thing for a Metroid game. I also, I really like... um if you try to block their attacks too early, there'll be like an animation where Samus is like trying to stop them from hitting her, but it'll just be like way too early. It'll just do it anyway. It's all in vain. I think those moments yeah. are really like, I, I, I think they're they really good at setting that. the tone. Yeah. They're especially good yeah. during uh, any part when you're in water because you counter slower too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is really funny, though. Like if you do successfully counter, it's this big, bold swing where you'll like punch it across the face or like you'll do like a a roundhouse kick type thing almost and push it away from you. And if you fail, it's just like gently putting your foot against them (laughs) 
and it does nothing. And I don't know. I just always found that that pretty good. I think I only succeeded in getting away like twenty five percent of the time, maybe. But it was always like it felt deserved when I did die, though. <laughs> yeah, I would say my odds were about probably worse, <laughs> maybe like fifteen percent of the time. It, it, I definitely had a lot more scenes where I would try to counter and just fail. I don't think I ever yeah. countered the one where it comes from the head properly. I did it very infrequently, for sure. So. I couldn't. I I would get the timing of the hand a lot more often. <laughs> okay, that's a lot of Metroid Dread talk already, and I think you can probably glean how we felt about the game as a whole already. But let's get into it. Jackson, give us some pros and some cons. This game is really good. It's got a very nice movement system, tons of upgrades that, for the most part, do pretty different things that are pretty cool. Um, I I still think the bosses are just a little too boring, but then again, I feel like bosses for games are just kind of hard to design in general. But uh, except the Emmys. The Emmys are different from the other bosses obviously and i feel like i haven't really seen them in any game other than this unless they're just like a one-off thing so they're really yeah, big it, in horror games like yeah. enemies that'll just sneak up on you and one hit kill you i yeah, think that's where I, the idea comes from i mean the whole like not being killable part i feel like usually in horror games things like that are kind of like a one and done thing maybe a few other times but there's seven of those in this game and for a while, and for a lot of them, you have to deal with them for a while before you can even kill them, which is also pretty nice. I think you're just thinking of Resident Evil. Generally, like in in horror games, a big thing is like being chased, and you can't kill them, and they'll instantly kill you. Like that's in a lot of horror games. Now, it being in these like hard to find areas, like or hard defined, not hard to find areas that are like really set aside as like this is the emmy zone that's pretty unique to this and i think that's part of what makes this so cool but yeah this idea of there being like a recurring villain that pops back up and chases you that's that's a pretty common thing in horror games but not in any other genre and this is a really nice adaptation of that but yeah emmy room's definitely the highlight of this game for me i recommend this to anyone <laughs> if you've like me not really played a metroidvania before i think this is a good game to get into them, from what I heard, it is, uh, you know, a pretty good one. <laughs> Jason, how you feeling about it? Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree in a lot of ways with the things Jackson said. I mean, I think that the the Emmys are a really cool adaptation of, you know, classic horror game tropes. And I think it's really nice to see. I think uh, this is the first game this year that I've played that really feels like a game of the year contender. No, I mean, I, I really enjoy it. I think that... It might be a little bit too linear, but it's a really good send up and kind of almost a perfection of the, the Metroidvania genre. Like it kind of cuts out all the fluff and it, it has everything that you'd come to expect from them. Makes me interested in playing. I kind of want to pick up at least uh, Samus Returns because I know it plays the most similarly. I think that that counter that they added in Samus Returns, I'd not really a big uh, point for Metroid Dread because it's just, you know, using something they've already done. But I, I think that's a complete game changer. And I think it makes the gameplay so much more fun, in my opinion. So, yeah, I would highly recommend it to just about anybody. And like I said, this is uh, so far. I mean, this would be my my game of the year. I think for me, like 
I, I went into this game with probably unreasonably high expectations because I love this series. I love the Metroidvania genre. I, I sort of had this, this vision in my mind of exactly what this game was. And in a lot of ways, it went even further above and beyond what I was expecting. Like, I think it's just, it's, it's just way more fun than I expected it to be. The bosses are really cool. They, they do a really good job of bringing back iconic Metroid moments, but still making it feel like a modern game. I think the, the way the Emmys are implemented is absolutely brilliant. Like, it's just everything about this game is just so cool and it's so fun. And I, I don't know. Like, I don't even know how to really talk about it uh, intelligently at all other than just like, this is a very good game. <laughs> and even if you're kind of not sure about the genre or the series, I, I still recommend giving it a shot. Really, the only group that I wouldn't recommend this game to are people that are really invested in the amount of time you get out of a game based on the cost. Because I think there is a valid argument that a game that only takes 12 hours to 100% complete isn't always worth $60. And I think there are people that are still going to think that with this one. But if you have any history with the series, you like the Metroidvania genre, even if you just like 2D platformers, I there is so much here that is so, so good. And I just, yeah, I'm, I'm just thrilled by just about everything about this game. Like, e like, even though I had some complaints and some concerns, you know, overall, none of it really soured the fact that it's just a good game. <laughs> so, yeah, I would, I would highly, highly recommend it to just about anybody. Yeah, I would definitely say if you have a Switch, you should buy this game. <laughs> and if you don't Absolutely. have a Switch, it's you should buy a Switch and then buy this game. Honestly, it is certainly up there yeah, with Breath of the Wild as like the console great. Oh yeah, yeah. There, there are three games that I would say that you should definitely buy a Nintendo Switch for. And before that was Smash Brothers and Breath of the Wild, and now I would definitely say to add Metroid Dread to that list. I would say it's Breath of the Wild, Mario Odyssey, and Metroid Dread. Mario Odyssey is a, is a solid one, but we're not talking about Metroid Dread. Or wait, we are talking. We're not talking about Mario Odyssey. <laughs> we're talking about Metroid Dread. I thought we were talking about games to buy a Switch for. And we've already talked about Metroid Dread a lot, anyways. So we're gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna come back with all the headlines. <music> Folks, we've got some big news. Totally Biased Media isn't the only primo source for video game entertainment anymore. Because G4 is back, or will be, in exactly one month's time as of this recording. Wait, so we're obsolete now? No, we will be in a month. So we got to really knock out these, these last couple of episodes. <laughs> so, G4. It's a, it's a storied television channel that has gone through a lot. A lot of it negative. And uh, I, I don't know... I don't know, Jason, personally how much you watched it, but like for me, it had some some of my favorite shows at the time, even if I didn't fully care about most of the games they were talking about. I mean, I grew up watching at least, you know, some of the shows on G4. I remember X-Play a lot. I watched a lot of X-Play. <laughs> I remember that being yeah. one of those shows that I would come home from school excited to watch. 
Yeah, that was definitely my favorite. I th- we, you know, we would sit down with the parents on Saturday mornings and watch. Like they had a whole cartoon block where they would play like G.I. Joe, uh, Generation One Transformers and Beast Wars. And yeah. I, I remember that being like really fun. I think we'd watch Attack of the Show right after. So I don't really know what G4 is. So can you sort of explain it? It's literally just a television channel about nothing but video games, or predominantly video games. <laughs> it had a it had a big downhill slide near the end of its lifetime, where they just started showing reruns of Ninja Warrior, Cops, and uh, Cheaters. Yeah, and it would just it would just be constantly those three shows. And it it actually makes a lot of sense why it's gone through the evolution that it has, because I think at the at its core, this was video game news interviews. And as we shifted to a more online presence, those things sort of fell into obscurity because groups like IGN and GameSpot were putting out a review literally the minute the game went live. You didn't have to wait until the next episode of the show. So it made sense why it kind of fell off. But I'm actually excited to see it come back now because now we've evolved to have such a weird and specific sense of humor (laughs) that I think G4 can fit into very nicely if they have the right people writing for it and producing it and and just the right people involved from from top to bottom. And I think they're being real smart with some of the legacy content because we're going to have Attack of the Show back with Kevin Pereira still hosting it. X-Play's coming back. Adam Adam Sessler will be back with it. Um, it's leaning into some more modern stuff, like some esports programming. It's keeping Ninja Warrior, which I I guess there are some people that enjoy that. Ninja Warrior's fun to watch. I I don't know. I've never gone out of my way to watch it though. Yeah, and now I think it's is it like it's mostly online, yes. right? Yeah. A so lot, I, I don't think lot. I'll watch much Ninja Warrior, but I'll I'll probably tune in for any new episodes of X Play or Attack of the Show. Yeah. I hope Attack of the Show keeps like Attack of the Show wasn't just video games like no it was or t- even was... even just like you know movies or anything. I really liked that it was a show that kind of went into tech, and I I really hope that they keep that. What is Attack of the Show? Uh, it's just like a variety program. It's news and they do interviews and they break down new stuff in the tech world it's 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 a little bit of everything like it's it's sort of a comedy forward show that just does whatever it can with video games and movies and tech and you know it's just it has a very strange place in the world of television but i think it's it's truly a unique program because of that i also i remember that they would have segments where they would show like really impressive videos that people put together and like upload it to youtube which i don't know i don't know if they'll continue doing that kind of thing but it was really cool back in the day having you'd see stuff like people editing i mean this was like 2007 you'd see people like putting an att attacking los angeles or something (laughs) and it'd be like these really cool videos i remember seeing a lot of stuff like that on there i kind of hope they kind of continue with that kind of thing i said kind of a lot in that sense but (laughs) i don't know exactly how that would continue i mean for one like special effects have gone like they've come a long way so it wouldn't be as that 
it wouldn't be that impressive to have an X-Wing flying over a field anymore. I'm I'm very excited to see what this looks like, though. I'm not holding my breath for this being a tremendous financial success, but I, I'm excited to see what happens. They've already put out some cool content, like, through YouTube, and they've worked with some other, like, some specific YouTubers and streamers and just internet personalities to create some stuff before the channel even got started. So, it's definitely been cool to see people like Kevin Pereira and Adam Sessler back in the mix. I wish I had any idea of what the new attack of the show is going to be like yeah i know because they've uploaded like plenty of sketches with kevin Pereira, but they haven't like with x play they basically had adam doing the same thing he's going to be doing on x play but no idea what attack of the show is going to look like in 2021 i can tell you for sure it won't look like it did in 2013 (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah which i didn't realize until reading up on this G4 lasted a lot longer than I thought it did. Like, the network didn't effectively go down until 2014. Now, by mm-hmm. then, of course, they had, lot of, they had lost a lot of their, their sort of quintessential programming, but it actually hasn't been that long since the channel went out. It's just we're seeing a full-on revival, even bringing back some stuff that wasn't around when the network stopped. So, or before the network stopped. So, looking forward to it, though. Another thing I'm looking forward to is Mr. James Gunn's return to the MCU in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And, for the first time in quite a while, we actually have some news about the movie. I thought we were just going to talk about how cool Drax is. That that too. <laughs> when he turns invisible with his chafy nipples, I felt that. <laughs> no, wait. <laughs> but anyways, Will Poulter... Recently in Midsummer, uh, he was the star of Black Mirror Bandersnatch. His real breakout role, as far as I'm aware, was We're the Millers. Uh, he has officially been cast as Adam Warlock. In case you're wondering, in the meme, Will Poulter is the one that says, you guys are getting paid? <laughs> yes, that is him. And uh, <laughs> speaking of, he plays a lot of roles which are sort of comedy butt of the joke nerdy stuff so i'm interested in seeing him play a character like adam warlock who is one of the most powerful beings in the history of marvel and i don't know what to expect with that because all we know about this character is that it is in some way connected to the sovereign who was introduced in guardians galaxy volume 2 and the post credit scene was something to the effect of the warlock protocol or initiative or program or something which was really pointing towards like adam warlock is coming but that's now been what four years ago and the character yeah, has 2017 so I'm, I'm really interested to see where they go with this both both in terms of narratively but i also i really want to know what he's going to look like as adam warlock well you know you point out it's been four years narratively it's been Nine years. I think yeah. Nine. yeah. Yeah. So maybe he got snapped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which probably says a lot about the power that he's going to have. Um, no, I'm not too worried about it. I mean, I think James Gunn's pretty good about having characters played by unexpected actors like that do well with the tone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. kind of the opposite of this, but I mean, he had Sylvester Stallone playing 
a giant talking idiot shark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm not too worried about him getting a good performance out of someone that's mostly acted in more comedic roles. That yeah. said, like Midsommar was a horror movie, wasn't oh, yeah, it? Yeah. And it's, it's not his norm at all. It's just, I think what a lot of people think of when they think Will Poulter is characters like that. Um, it's also just funny to me. Like, I'm sure it will be played off well because it's James Gunn we're talking about, but it's, it's funny when you look at pictures of Adam Warlock from the comics, he is this tall, ridiculously muscular, incredibly chiseled jaw, like hyper masculine dude. <laughs> and Will Poulter is not traditionally that. And I'm sure, again, I'm sure he's going to play it off incredibly well. It's just kind of funny the direction they went with that. James Gunn's really big into... Uh Toppling expectations. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So let's talk about Disney. <laughs> Something we never do on this this podcast. So we're sort of out of our depth with this one, but I still think it's worth mentioning because it, it's an interesting change for Disney. So Alan Horn, who has been the CCO of Disney Studios since 2011, is stepping down. Or sorry, since 2012, is stepping down. Now, this guy has an incredible pedigree in terms of stuff he's worked on, like uh, Frozen, Zootopia, Moana, the in- almost everything in the MCU, starting with the Avengers in 2012. Like, he's been over a ton of stuff. But even before that, he was in a similar position at WB, where he oversaw Harry Potter, the Hobbit trilogy, the Dark Knight movies. Like, this guy has had his hands on all kinds of major, major series and programs. And like, I think he was most amazing in his role in taskmaster. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Big fan of, I'm uh, I'm getting conflicting reports. I believe that that was actually Alex horn. Yeah. Sorry. But speaking of that, I don't think I know what a CCO does. (laughs) Well, he was, the creative officer, I believe his role is probably making sure that everything kind of fit into the vision that Disney had as a company. Yeah. And I picture him having a lot of meetings about like tone and aesthetic, even if he's not actually doing a lot of, you know, minute to minute changes on stuff. I feel like he was probably involved with a lot of just the way the way things were perceived a lot of the time and what's really yeah, interesting and the fact that he's not being replaced i think is a pretty telling of what disney really thought of his uh his <laughs> place in the company right now yeah yeah i i would say at this point i mean the big people that kind of entered in, answered to him were kevin feige kathleen kennedy pete doctor from pixar and Jennifer Lee from Disney Animation. Like, I don't necessarily know that those people need to be answering to someone like him anymore. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, they've been in these positions long enough that they probably know what they're doing. Yeah, and even if you're not especially happy with the turn in Disney movies lately or, like, what has happened with the Star Wars universe, you still gotta, you still gotta acknowledge they are making bank 
like on a level that most of us can't even really comprehend. So like if they keep turning out, you know, movies that are going to sell a billion dollars worth of tickets, <laughs> I think they're doing all right without without the oversight there. You know, honestly, we might even see better stuff coming out of it. <laughs> Who knows? Jackson, what are your thoughts on Disney's management style? Uh, I don't, I don't. Look, Disney doesn't do, they do a bunch of bad things. So, uh, it, it bad. I personally think that Disney's, that, sorry, I, let me restart. I personally think that Disney's, um, management style really pales in comparison to Datney. I hate that. I knew, <laughs> I knew what you were going to say. As soon as you stopped yourself, I was like, well, I know where this is going. <laughs> <sighs> in a lot of ways Disney does but that need don't <laughs> that was a really stretched joke <laughs> <sighs> but yeah Disney does what that need don't <laughs> <laughs> but anyways Big changes coming at Disney. And, and there's another place where big changes are coming. And it's a lot closer than you might think. Jordan, that was your, that was your cue. Animal Crossing, New Horizons, version 2.0 is on the horizons. <laughs> so in a uh, Animal Crossing Direct that happened on the 15th, they really dug into what's to come for Animal Crossing New Horizons. And one, it's a lot of stuff fans have been asking for for a long time, but it's also some pretty significant changes for how things are going to work with Animal Crossing in the future. Not only is the game getting the uh, cafe, which people have been requesting pretty much since New Horizons launched and has been in every game since Wild World, so... A pretty significant uh, part of the game being brought in. Um, there are also just a ton of changes coming, which will give you more options for customizing houses and landscapes. And you'll have all kinds of new options for things like fencing and uh, shrubbery, I think. <laughs> a, a new, and, a big thing coming is that there will be permanent locations for a lot of the I guess I would call them seasonal vendors. Not necessarily yeah. seasonal, but the ones that randomly visit your island. Uh, people like Leaf or Red. They'll now have a permanent residence where you can go visit them whenever you want. Which will probably help a lot of people finish up their museums. It's, it's opening up a lot of ways to really dig into the systems that are already there. And then just adding some new ones which give you some more customization options and... Let you really, you know, get into the self-expression part of Animal Crossing, which is a huge, huge part of New Horizons. They're also bringing town ordinances back from New Leaf. Yes. Uh, In New Leaf, you could set town ordinances so people would clean up the island better and stop weeds from growing, or they would wake up earlier or stay up later or just make more money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
basically you I don't can know why now, that wasn't already in the game yeah yeah it was a pretty significant detail that I think would have helped a lot of people's experience like especially people that play especially late at night or especially early in the morning or that just check in at sporadic times instead of having consistent times to play this can sort of let you tailor how your villagers act and what the you know how the island changes to how and when you play which is very very cool Another thing fans have been clamoring for that we're finally getting are the gyroids, which, as someone who's only played one previous game and only for a couple weeks, I don't really understand what these things are, but I know people have been real excited about them. They're basically just noisemakers, aren't they? I think so. Like, you set them in a, on a shelf... And they, like, make a certain tone or series of tones on a certain rhythm. And then if you have more of them in the same room or close together, then they, like, sort of create a background beat or something. But they're, like, one of the one of the core design items people have been asking for since the game came out. And they're back, and there are a ton of ways to customize them, and you can make changes to their appearance and to the songs they sing and all that. So I suspect this is something that's going to be incorporated into a lot of people's uh, islands very, very soon. Um, they also made the big announcement that uh, DLC is coming to the game, or rather, what the DLC is. And it's dipping back in to Animal Crossing's least successful <laughs> entry in the series, Happy Home Designer. But this time, it's doing it good? <laughs> it kind of seems like there's at least a reason to do it. Yeah, yeah. When you're in the game, what you do is you go to like a new set of tropical islands and... You basically start working for a home design company for vacation homes. And then you can completely customize the homes that people request. Like they'll give you a prompt basically and be like, oh, I want a house with this, this and this. And then you get to pick like where that is on, you know, these tropical islands, like which individual island it's on or which part of a larger island it's on. You can customize, you know, what the house looks like inside and outside outside being the big thing. Um, it, it definitely seems interesting. And from my understanding, a lot of the stuff that's added in this DLC, you'll be able to kind of carry over to your main island. I will say, though, they don't pay you in bells. You get paid. Like, you're literally working a job in this DLC. <laughs> <laughs> But they got a company store, which I'm fairly certain is illegal. They're only getting away with it because they're they're probably not. They're in international waters. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know how that works for houses. It's like when Walt Disney wanted to have Disney World be like its own like town and pay everyone in like Disney bucks. Yeah, except they're getting away with it because they're cute. Or when the coal mines did it for a long time. In, uh, yeah, in all of our and neighboring state. So I think what's so exciting about this, which I could be totally wrong about everything, like this could not be implemented correctly in, in a way that's fun at all. But for me, I love something about Animal Crossing, but I can't quite define what it is. And this seems like there is a workable version of Happy Home Paradise being sort of the core game 
And then me going back and making an island the way I want it to is like the extra or like the, what I am getting out of doing the main game. So like for me, this sounds very exciting. Like this seems like something that could really get me back into New Horizons, which I've bounced off of twice since I, I played the game straight through for months. Then I stopped and I came back a couple of times like, I'm going to get back into it. And that has not worked out either time. But I think this is something that could actually like genuinely get me back into Animal Crossing. Yeah, I've been really wanting to get back in for a while now. I've uh, been trying to get back in on the turnip trade. Uh, that didn't work. <laughs> but I think I'll finally get into it after this releases. Well, the turnip trade isn't fun if you don't have online. Like, And I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of online, let's get into some other weird news for Nintendo. Someone's finally coming out against Xbox. Xbox famously has Game Pass, the greatest deal in gaming. Um, on the other hand, Nintendo is coming out and they've decided and they've kind of created what I would call the worst deal in gaming. Yeah. It's called Sorry, Nintendo Switch Online plus expansion pack monthly plan. It costs $50 a year, and all you get is the ability to play Nintendo 64 games and Sega Genesis games on your Switch, and you get this one $25 DLC. But only for as long as you have Nintendo Switch Online. Like, Which I don't know how that works. Like, what happens when you run out if you're yeah. on one of the DLC islands? Is it just like, <laughs> sorry? You die. <laughs> <laughs> Your character was killed because you were trespassing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I. So when I saw that Nintendo Switch Online was adding Nintendo 64 and Sega Genesis stuff, I was like, heck yeah. Then I was like, ooh, it's going to cost more. It's like, well, it'll be a couple dollars more a month. Like, I can stomach it. I, I expected it to be, yeah, I expected it to be $10 more than what the normal nintendo switch online was yeah so i, w I was thinking like 30 dollars a month <laughs> you mean a year or yeah sorry 30 dollars a year 30 dollars a month would be insane yeah so when they announced that the price for this is 50 dollars a year i was just floored like this is so like this is this is a bold ask even by nintendo's <laughs> standards like, this is not worth it by any stretch. I'm telling you, it's the worst deal in gaming. <laughs> I might still get, like, one month of it so that I can play Paper Mario when it rolls around. But that's as far as I could see myself going. $50 a year is ridiculous. If I'm paying the same amount of money that I'm paying for... You know, PlayStation's network, I expect all the same functionality and features the PlayStation network has. Like, PSN gives me two games. Well, I think it's three games, right? Yeah. It's yeah. three games every single month. And I have them as long as I have PlayStation Plus. This is just giving me the ability to emulate old games and one $25 expansion pass. Or, sorry, not even expansion pass. One $25 DLC. Yeah. Why would I ever upgrade to this? And it's it's also dumb because really the big selling point, if you're going to have online lock to something like this, should be 
that that is paying for servers. And Nintendo doesn't even do that. <laughs> like, that should be the bare minimum. I, I don't even think... I was okay paying... It's like $20 a year for their normal stuff, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I I don't super mind that because that's incredibly cheap. But they're asking me to almost triple that, you know? Like, they're asking for two and a half times the money for, like, really not much extra. <laughs> And then they're going to complain in a while that people don't want to play old games because we don't buy this. Yes. And they're going to, it's just, it's really annoying because I, I really like that they're making it to where there's a legal way to emulate these old games. But they're just going to, they're going to see that this doesn't work out because no one wants to pay this money for this. And they're going to be like, oh, people don't actually want to play these games. They just say they do. Yeah. Or the, the whole package is going to be annoyingly successful. Like people are going to grumble about it, but they're still going to buy it. And then it's going to lock in this precedent forever. I mean, if it's successful, I would, if they put like all of their DLC on it. Yeah. That's the one thing I think that could salvage this is if this that was something I, I was thinking, like if they, if from now on every DLC that they make gets added to this pass, like, it's great. But if it's just going to be this Animal Crossing one, maybe it's too early to say. And it's definitely not worth it until they add more stuff. Yeah. It's kind of weird. I expected something like maybe the expansions for, you know, Breath of the Wild might be added to it as well. But you'd think that they would announce that at launch, considering it's an old game at this point. I'm just going to pay the $25 and save that extra $5 for whenever I want to buy some gum or something. <laughs> what do they say these days? Love me some of that $5 gum. That's it's five gum, right? Yeah. That's what, it, that's why it's called that. <laughs> Cause it's, what could a, what could a gum cost? $5. Uh, okay. Well, I think it's about time that we went and pulled the plug. Jackson. What's something else you've been into this week? Well, I haven't really been in the much this week. Nice. Moving on. Uh, other than <laughs> other than playing Metroid, I've just been rewatching Brooklyn Nine Nine, and I don't really want to talk about that. So instead, I'm just gonna recommend something. Destiny, nah. <laughs> uh, the Last of Us. I, you know, it's it's spooky season, so I've been thinking about The Last of Us a good bit. Probably gonna replay Part Two here soon, and it's just. It's such a good game. When? Um, I will admit, I, I will admit the first game's combat is not great. Um, but once you get into the story, it really carries you through. Plus, once you start to get upgrades and stuff for your weapons, it kind of takes away the parts that are bad. Like, insane, like, shakiness to the aiming. <laughs> it just sucks you to go so far in on upgrades to get to that. But... These games are for the story and the atmosphere and the settings and all that good stuff. And they're just, oh, they're, I don't, they're so good. I don't really know exactly what to say about them. <laughs> but like, I would say, I, I would say Last of Us 1 and 2 are some of the best stories in video games. Because first one, you know, it's all about uh, this guy, Joel 
who lived his life before the uh, the outbreak, and he starts to, you know, the outbreak happens. He's got to live in that now. And he meets this girl who could be the, like, cure for this outbreak. You got to take her, like, across to, like, Utah. <laughs> you got to go to Utah to save the world. <laughs> Dang it, Utah. And, yeah, it's just, it's in a very... It's a very emotional story. Like, the main, like, premise of it is pretty basic. It's, you know, there's zombies and you got to get the cure. But the the acting done in it is really good. <laughs> it's just, I don't, I should have chose something that I know how to uh, really describe as why it's so good <laughs> for what I was recommending. But, like, if you haven't heard of Last of Us Part, uh, part 1 or 2... <laughs> I don't know where you've been, especially if you haven't heard about part two in the past year. It's had a lot of criticism. Yeah, you're hearing him. He's saying if you haven't heard of these two games, you're an idiot. A stupid idiot who lives under a rock. (laughs) I mean, if you have not heard about the controversy from the second one by now. Then you just don't deserve to live. (laughs) I'm backing you up here, Jackson. But, like, if you want games with incredibly emotional <laughs> stories, if you want a game more for, like, the story than the gameplay, these are definitely the games. And they're not, like, they're not very long, so it's not like you have to sit through, like, gameplay that you may not agree with for too long or anything. So, I definitely highly recommend you check them out and maybe listen to someone who's better at explaining why they're so good than me before checking them out. <laughs> Saying if you're interested in any story games to check out The Last of Us is like saying if you're interested in any food, you should try mac and cheese. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not fine. wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's fine. Like I said, I did a bad job of explaining why this game is so good because I kind of thought about talking about this last minute because I hadn't done anything else this week. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and talk about, I don't know what to talk about. I don't really have anything, if I'm honest. <laughs> like, Good I, week for us. I didn't do anything. I just, uh, I've been playing this and Far Cry 6, which I could talk about Far Cry 6. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad. It's It's aggressively... Okay. <laughs> Far Cry 6 is quite possibly the least fun I've had with a game in a long time. And not because any part of it's like broken or busted. It's just nothing exciting about it at all. <laughs> Far Cry 6 is so bad and so boring that we were originally going to do an ep- we were originally going to do an episode about it and instead I'm talking about it now. <laughs> <laughs> I spent the money on this game strictly because I thought we were going to do an episode on it. I've already wasted the $60, and, and we were still like, nah, <laughs> let's not talk about this. <laughs> it's just, I just, I don't understand it at all. Like, there's no, the characters suck. Jackson, just go ahead and get a refund. It's bad. Like, I really like, I was really excited for it when they announced that John Carlo Esposito was in it, and that... Like, hearing him talk about it prior to, you know, it actually coming out. Like, I was really excited for it. And, like, the day before it came out, I was like, oh, I really wish I could play Far Cry 6. 
and the intro to the game is so strong and it just completely drops off from there. The map is way too big. It's incredibly boring to get around. I've heard, maybe it gets better once you get the wingsuit or whatever, <laughs> but it's just not a good time. And the characterization, like especially the main character, is super weird because you start as this guy who's, you know, he's kind of stuck in the middle of the Civil War, but he doesn't want to be part of it. He wants to flee to America. And then he gets stopped and his friend who was part of the resistance gets killed and he's like, oh, well, I guess the only way I'm going to get out is with the help of the resistance. So then you go join the resistance and like 10 minutes later, he's like, I love the resistance. I stand for everything they stand for. Nothing will ever change my mind. And I have already killed so many people (laughs) at their behest. Like a guy comes up to you and he's like, why do you do this? And it's just like, or he, he comes up and he's like, you just do this because you're having fun. And your character's just like, yes. And it's like, what? It's just this insane emotional whiplash. It's like, you didn't want to be a part of this 10 minutes ago. And now you're talking like, oh yeah, I just love the chaos. I, I've just never seen such like weird characterization before in a game. And I don't like the main character either. Yeah. Even past the intro, it's just wildly inconsistent. Like, I have started... I've finished one... Basically, the the game branches off in three directions. And I have now finished one of them and done a chunk of a second one. And the first one actually wasn't bad. It was actually, like, decent characters and some decent missions. And then I went to the second area, and it's just the most aggressively obnoxious, over-the-top people that don't have any motivation that makes any sense at all. Like... There's just, there's a lot of inconsistency, which is ironic because consistency is literally the only thing that the Far Cry series has going for it. It's the only thing any of Ubisoft has going for it. Far Cry, Far Cry 3 was the last game that was actually good in the Far Cry series. And then every game since then has just been Far Cry 3 again, at least with the main series. I know Abby really likes Far Cry Primal. Um, I actually enjoyed Primal quite a bit, but I I also personally think 4 is sort of the height because it is very similar to 3, but I think it sort of expands upon everything. But yeah, 5 was just aggressively boring. I liked 4 so much that as soon as 5 was available for pre-order, I went and pre-ordered like the most expensive version of it. It's like a hundred and some dollars. And... I had already given up on the game well before any of the DLC that I was that I ordered with that was available. So I I think I played about six or seven hours of it, maybe longer than that. It was probably I probably played about a third of the game story wise and map wise, and that's when I was just like, I hate this. And I six think is stronger if- than that, but it still hit that point a lot sooner than it should have. I think the reason that 3 and 4 work and 5 and 6 don't is because 3 and 4, one, they're on significantly smaller maps. And two, it's like Uncharted Islands. Well, 3 is like an Uncharted Island and then 4 is like... It's the Himalayas. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Yeah, and I I think the big thing is just how interesting the terrain is. Yeah. And then Far Cry 5 and 6, like, flat. You get forest and you get... Town. town yeah it's just like getting around is just driving around there's no like (laughs) which i will say i I I feel like i fast travel all the time i think the driving's fine it's whatever some cars can't turn (laughs) like there's a buggy that you can find at some of the checkpoints and it just doesn't turn 
It makes no sense to me. I don't know. Horse riding's cool. Don't know why that wasn't in five or four. <laughs> yeah. That's more fun than some of like the actual vehicles. And I feel like this one really punishes you if you want to play stealthily. Whereas three probably punished you for the opposite. <laughs> but like you're constantly having to destroy stuff that basically requires like heavy ordnance, like dynamite or whatever. I guess that's not necessarily heavy ordnance, but you know what I mean? I don't know. That was just a ramble. I was going to say I played Far Cry 6, but then I decided to complain about how much I hate Far Cry 6. I'll probably play a little bit more and then delete it. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't really started yet. Uh, I'll give it a shot, but I doubt I'll still fit for too long. (laughs) Jordan, what's you been up to? Well, I was going to talk about Far Cry 6. (laughs) Too bad. I done did that. Yeah. Yeah, and I won't. We can just talk about it more. I won't. No, I won't expand upon it any more than we already have. We've already given it more than it's due. Um, It's as cookie cutter as possible, and it's not even necessarily the good parts of previous games. So, yeah. So that's that's fun. I mean, well, not fun, but you know, it's it's aggressively not fun. Far Cry Three was the death knell of the open world sandbox. Yeah, we're like. There was nothing more that could be done to really improve on it. Like, it's open world, and now we're just stuck. Every game since has just fallen back into the same tropes. Because every game just thinks making it bigger is better. And it's like, first off, Far Cry 6, making it bigger doesn't really matter. Because, like, two-thirds of the water, two-thirds of the map is water. Yeah. I thought the first island, when I thought that was the full game, I was like, oh, this is really nice size. Yeah, me too. I had the exact same thought. And then I zoomed out and saw that that's only like 120th of the map. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think it's just about time to wrap it on up. So, if you would like to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter at TBMcast, on Instagram at Totally Biased Media. Or you can send an email to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. Send us your reviews, your suggestions for the show, uh, anything and everything about movies or music or video games or television that you want to share with us. Please do, and we'll be happy to work it in however we can. We'll respond however we can. Just we, We'd love to hear from you. But for the Totally Biased Media Podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. Jackson is gone, apparently. Jackson, that's your line. I'm Jackson Walkup. And you just felt the bias. Weird energy coming out of this one. <laughs> I don't I don't know what happened. Like, I ought to just cut out there for a second. Evil TBM be like, <laughs> you didn't feel the bias. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>